presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD. Although pediatric patients and their families may present with difficult behaviors or unrealistic expectations, it is the pediatric practitioner who is responsible for steering encounters to their best outcome. The wisdom of experienced practitioners is the pediatrician's best guide to navigating difficult encounters. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Andrea Asnes. Dr. Asnes is a pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. She is the author of the recent article in Pediatrics in Review, entitled The Difficult Pediatric Encounter, Insights and Strategies for the Pediatric Practitioner. Welcome, Dr. Asnes. Thank you. Dr. Asnes, you clearly point out the responsibility of the clinician for guiding clinical encounters in your article. Blaming difficult encounters on impossible patients cannot be permitted. Absolutely not. And this is actually kind of a controversial position to take for some people. But our Academy of American Academy of Pediatrics clearly tells us that we are the trusted advocates for the well-being of children and that communication and collaboration are principles of professionalism that are up to us to be upheld. It's not easy to feel responsible, especially when an encounter has become negative with, through no fault of our own. It's not easy to feel responsible for ameliorating it, and yet the responsibility does, in fact, lie with us to do so. Do you feel that the guidelines that are given to physicians with regard to those professional principles of communication are specific enough to really direct clinicians as they encounter a huge range of behaviors in others? They are far from specific, but I think that the underlying principle is clear. But in terms of practical advice, I would say that those guidelines are lacking. We often focus exclusively on the patient, their symptoms, their emotional reactions. But let's look at what the clinician needs to be aware of in him or herself. Hmm, That's a very interesting point. I think that we all have different styles. We all have different potential triggers that can put us into a defensive or even angry stance. Certainly, there's a time that comes toward the end of the year before I take a vacation that I've been working and working and feeling as though I only work. And when when I meet a demanding patient at that time of the year, I kind of have an urge to turn around and say, I'm doing it. I'm just taking care of too many people and too many things. I don't have anything left for you. You know, I, I recognize in myself a seasonal trend towards feeling overburdened and frustrated that I've learned over the years to be aware of and to know that my patients need me, and I need to be giving to to them in the same degree no matter what else is going on with me personally. I would like to read an example from your article in Pediatrics in Review, and this is an example where emotions are running high on the part of the practitioner rather than the parent. Your next patient in Continuity Clinic is a nine-month-old girl who has only had her two-month immunizations. You scan her chart and note multiple missed appointments, as well as documentation of repeated telephone outreach to the child's mother by your office staff. You feel frustration, even anger, as you turn the handle on the door and enter the examination room. This is a familiar scenario to us in our work. We certainly all share a desire to take care of children, and I think when we plan to be pediatric practitioners, we rarely think of how challenging it's going to be to interact with parents who may not be providing that optimal care or have not worked with us to take optimal care of children. 
I think that feeling frustrated in this situation is natural. We are the natural advocates for our patients who are children, and it makes sense to feel a degree of frustration in a situation like this where care has not been ideal. Even anger, I think, is an understandable emotion here, but these emotions can undermine this opportunity, and I think it's important to see this as an opportunity for a patient who has not been seen in quite some time and whose mother has not presented her for care. It's an opportunity to reestablish an important relationship, and if the negative emotions of frustration and anger are the first ones presented to the parent, it may destroy a pivotal opportunity to reestablish a partnership in care. So you're saying that the child and caregiver can never really benefit from the practitioner's expression of anger. Unfortunately, I think that we can't. It may be anger of the best intention, and I think that the anger that one feels in the situation is well-founded, but expressing it, I think, can rarely do any good at all. This seems to come back to practical advice. If you really want to work with people, that expression, as justified as it may feel, isn't going to help. It's not going to help. And I think our obligation is to help and to take responsibility for, if not only ameliorating a situation, but not letting a situation get worse. And I think recognizing that that our anger, no matter how justified it is, or our frustration, can only make things worse. You said that you run across scenarios like this in, in your practice. And I suppose running across situations like this over and over has some kind of a cumulative effect on your emotions as you face yet another one of these kinds of situations. Without a doubt. And I think that we can become fatigued by this kind of scenario being repeatedly presented to us. However, I've had kind of a paradoxical response to these scenarios as I've practiced longer and longer. Because I think the appropriate response in this situation is to ask questions and to try to understand why the parent in this scenario has not presented the child for care regularly, I've learned actually to feel more sympathy for these kind of parents over time because I've come to see them as people with their own struggles. I think once the person on the other side of the door becomes an actual person instead of just, oh, that mother that doesn't ever come for her visits, and instead becomes Miss Blank or Mrs. Blank who can tell us about exactly why she hasn't been here, our capacity for sympathy to that person and our ability to support her really increases. So I've found that these patients, I can feel more for them and more positively about them and my ability to possibly reach out and help them the more I talk to them and learn their stories. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Andrea Asnes, pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine, and we are discussing the difficult pediatric encounter, specifically the situation where a parent is not doing all that is recommended for the health of their child and provoking uncomfortable and negative feelings in the clinician. Dr. Asnes, it sounds like you're not only advising openness, but also curiosity, that if the clinician can be kind of fueled with curiosity, they'll get farther. Absolutely. I think that curiosity, a genuine desire to know more about our patients and their families, what life is like for them, how they inhabit the world, it actually, in my experience, tends to enhance what can be the repetitive practice of general pediatrics, where patients' needs and issues are often quite similar one to the next. What enriches it is an understanding of each family, what makes that family unique, their struggles and their strengths. And I think that I have over time cultivated a real interest in these people and who they are 
and found just almost secondarily that the curiosity that I feel and the knowledge that I receive as a result of it has helped me to help them pretty significantly. So with the little bit of a sketch that you get, the little bit of information that you get prior to interacting with patients, you need to keep in mind that you don't know the whole story. You don't. And we found that patients had extremely valid reasons for missing appointments, sometimes quite tragic ones. I mean, we have had moms who've been victimized by their partners in domestic violence situations who were prevented from coming because they had a black eye on the day of the visit and the partner didn't want it to be discovered. You can imagine that that frustration that one feels on entering the room gets turned around very quickly when we learned that the mother, who we thought was really perpetrating something bad, was actually a victim herself. It's very satisfying and upsetting, of course, to hear that, but satisfying to find something that maybe we can help with, like a domestic violence situation that we can empower a mother to take steps to get out of. Here's another situation that you describe in your article where the pediatrician needs to help the parent recognize a problem that the parent does not perceive as a problem. This is a tricky situation. A two-month-old is in your office for a health supervision visit. You enter the room to find the baby lying on the examination table next to a propped bottle and her mother sitting in a chair across the room talking on a cell phone. You politely request the mother to finish her call and begin the visit. When you ask about the baby's diet, the mother reports that she gives her baby water frequently to avoid constipation. She also gives her two teaspoons of honey because she is sweet, she says. Review of the baby's growth chart indicates that she has failed to gain weight appropriately. As you begin talking about the dangers of water and honey, you are interrupted by the mother saying, I have six children, they are all healthy, and they all ate the same thing. I don't need to hear this from you. It can be very challenging, especially when we know as professionals that there's a problem here. And in this case, there's a mother who believes there's no problem whatsoever. So we have a problem immediately to change this mother's mindset and be able to help her to see that, in fact, there is an intervention necessary here and something has to change. This is a potentially dangerous situation. So I think it's very easy hearing this to think, I just need to fuss at this person and tell them how crazy they are and this can't be done and give a list of all the transgressions that are going on here. But unfortunately, I don't think that would be terribly effective in this situation. I think what we need to do is, first of all, choose our battles and decide of everything that we've witnessed in this small scenario, there are several things that are bothering us. We have a propped bottle. We have a baby who's going to learn to roll soon on a tall examining table without a parent nearby to prevent her rolling off. But more importantly, we know that this baby is failing to thrive, and we already have figured out why. She's getting a lot of water instead of her formula or breast milk, and she's being fed honey, which we know is risky and can cause infant botulism. So we need to really decide where to start, and I think the failure to thrive in the honey are the most important in this situation. And it's hard to leave other things to the side, but I think we really need to choose what we're going to focus on. The way that we approach this is crucial. I think I often tell our residents about this, and it, it sounds kind of hokey and silly, but it's really quite effective, just to use the appropriate pronoun. Instead of saying you to the mother, like you are doing this and it is wrong, you are doing that and it is wrong, I like to teach them to say we. We have a problem here. This child that we both care about so much is not gaining weight appropriately, and we need to look at why and find a way to solve the problem. And that conveys a partnership instead of a failure of the parent, which can put a parent very much on the defensive 
and cause him or her to not hear the good advice that we're about to offer. That's excellent. That puts you both on the same side of the table immediately. That's the idea. Hopefully it will work. Are there more things that the clinician can do to bridge the gap? Because this is a very different mindset that this parent has from the pediatrician. I like to ask my trainees and my colleagues and myself in the situation to to search diligently for any positive we can find in the situation, something that we can recognize and support in this parent. This is an experienced parent and one who successfully raised children. And I like to point that out here and say, you know, I know you've been an effective parent for a long time. You've raised a lot of children and I know that they've thrived. You have a great deal of experience and I really respect that. And then once that's accomplished, we can go back to the problem. Great advice. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Andrea Asnes, pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Asnes. My pleasure. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.